0: great to see you out here this morning. I'm excited uh, for the message this morning, and I'm confident the Lord is at work in our midst. We're going to talk about the topic of failure for a few moments and how to fail into faith. I remember my first driving test as a teenager. Anybody here remember that experience? Usually not a fun experience. And I took my driving test in Noka, Minnesota, and I drew the unfortunate lot of the driver instructor that was known to fail guys. So I thought, oh, no. So I got this dude as my driving instructor. And I remember getting in the car, being a little nervous. And we're driving there in the back of Anoka, and it's a little hilly. And he said to me, park going down the hill. Well, at that moment, I was going up a hill. Okay. So I went over the top of the hill. I parked going down the hill, stopped, put the wheels towards the curb, thought, man, I just, I hammered that, you know. And he started, he started moaning and saying, you're not very good at listening to instructions, are you? Started deducting points. I'm going, what? He, he said, I said park going, you know, down the hill. He meant going up the hill. But, you know, in Minnesota, they always say, oh, anyway. You, anyway." So I, I didn't do very good. I thought, oh, no, he already deduct me points. So then I'm driving around. I'm kind of nervous. I don't know how you did with your driving test. So now I'm getting nervous. So then I'm supposed to turn onto Main Street in Anoka. Now, it's kind of busy traffic there all the time. So I saw a little opening. You know, I did what any driver would do. I just gunned her, got out into the traffic. <laughs> Not the right thing to do on your driver test. It immediately said, well, you can go back to the station. You, you just failed. Uh, so this was really humiliating for me. It was a failure uh, in my estimation. I had grown up uh, riding dirt bike dirt bikes, and I felt like I could handle a car all right. My brother and I, when I was 14 years old and he was 16 years old, we rebuilt his Roadrunner. Uh, I was driving cars before I was legally driving cars, if, I, if you follow what I'm saying, and, and all that. And this was so humiliating. I remember getting in the car after I had failed the test, and my mom said, how did it go? And I said, he failed me. And she just laughed and laughed and laughed. She thought that was hilarious. I did not think it was hilarious. We all experience failure in our lives at some point. It may be a driver's test, it may be something much, much more significant than that. And our lives as followers of God seem to be a mixture, I think if we're honest, it seems to be a mixture of failure and faith. Failure is just part of the human condition. We fail and the question becomes, how are we gonna fail in such a way that it moves us more into this category of faith? You know, when you look at the disciples, in the, in, the, in the New Testament, they are a mixture of failure and faith. Peter's a classic example uh, of this very thing. Let me give you a little bit of background, and then I'll make my point more clear. Um, in Matthew chapter 14, John the Baptist is beheaded. Now, John's the forerunner of Jesus Christ. John's the relative of Jesus, and this evidently uh, bothered Jesus. And he went across the lake to, to go to a solitary place to, to I think, just to kind of have some Time alone to process what had just transpired, but the crowds follow him, and so he ends up with this big crowd of people around him, and he ends up miraculously feeding five thousand. It just—it's unbelievable when you read it, kind of in the context that he just lo- lost his 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 relative John to beheading, and then after feeding the five thousand, he tells the disciples. You know, you go ahead and go back to the other side of the lake. I'm going to dismiss the people. And he does that. And then he goes up in the mountain and prays. And we're told in the Bible on the fourth watch that he decides then to walk across the water to his disciples. Now, the fourth watch is like 3 a.m. in the morning. So he comes walking to his disciples on the water and they're still rolling the boat to get across the lake. And Peter sees him and other disciples see him and they think he's a ghost. And he says, no, it is I, it's Jesus. And Peter says, if he really is you, Lord, then tell me to come to you on the water. And this is what transpires in Matthew chapter 14, verses 29 through 31. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, came towards Jesus. He water walked. Can you imagine that? I think changed his life. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Now, let me ask you a real pointed question here. Would you consider this experience by Peter to be a failure? Would you categorize it that way? Or would you categorize it as a grand success? You see, life as a follower of God is a mixture of faith and failure. Sure, Peter failed when he doubted Jesus, but he water walked. Amen? And when he began to fail, what did he do? Save me, Lord. He cried out to Jesus and he experienced the strong saving grace of Jesus Christ. So, in the midst of this failure of Peter, is all this significant lessons and things going on that I think impacted Peter forever. As the people of God, we got to understand something. Our lives are going to be a mixture of failure and faith. It's just the way it is. We're on leg three of the Here to There series of messages that we're going through this summer. And in the Here to There series of messages, we're trying to look more like Jesus Christ. And this third leg is all about having a prevailing faith. When we are people who let our failures move us to faith, we look off a lot like Jesus, amen? When we are a faithful people following after God, that's the look of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we talk about failure, just remember, the goal is to look more like Christ in that we handle it with faith. Amen? Do you think our culture is mortified by failure? We sure are. We are mortified by failure. Can you think of a failure in your own life? How has that affected you as a person? Did it paralyze you? Did it shame you? Did you use it as a tool to move you to more faithfulness in God? I know in my own life I've often failed. And I know sometimes when I have a fear of failure, you know what it does? I won't even try. How about you? If I think, well, I don't really stand a shot at succeeding at this, I just won't do it. That way I can tell myself I'm not a failure. Amen? I'll, I think a lot of people approach life in that very way. I submit to you this. Failure will be part of your life experience. The question becomes, how will you handle it? How will you deal with your failure so that the outcome is stronger dependence in the Lord and greater faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Failure can either derail you or it can be a tool that God uses in your life to cause you to be more dependent upon him. Thomas Edison, the famous inventor of the light bulb, was once asked, what did it feel like to fail hundreds of times in try and invent the light bulb? To which he replied, well, I didn't fail. I discovered hundreds of ways not to make a light bulb. It's perspective. Did you know that Post-it notes, somebody was really gracious and put Post-it notes on my desk because I didn't have them first hour. So whoever you are, thank you, you're great. Do you know that Post-it notes are a result of a failure? It's one of those stories that you hear when you first get employed at 3M. This scientist, his name was um, Spencer Silver, was trying to develop a, a really super strong adhesive, and he failed miserably. Instead, what he developed was a reusable, not very tacky adhesive that would just stick kind of but you could reuse it. Well, at one of his seminars when he was explaining this to some fellow 3Mers, uh, a fellow named Art Fry thought, you know what, I'm going to take your adhesive, and he began to put it on little pieces of paper and use it in his hymnal uh, to, to note what hymn they were singing, and then he would take it off. He was on the choir, evidently. Uh, take it off and then reuse it, and he thought, oh, this is kind of like reusable Post-it notes. And so Art Fry... Uh, took to heart a policy that 3M had back in that day of permitted bootlegging, and he did a little bit of lab work on his own trying to develop this product. And so he thought, I'm going to make something called you know, sticky notes. They didn't know what to call them back then. And so he went to the neighboring uh, place by the lab that was the scrap paper of 3M, and all they had was yellow paper. So he initially just used yellow paper and put this on it, and Post-it notes came out of it. In fact, he had to stick them around one of the uh, manager's desks in 3M to get them to use them. And he goes, what are these things? Sticky notes. I think they'll sell. <laughs> and thus, from a failure, you have Post-it notes. I've told our staff here at, at, at Grace Point, every now and then we're going to try something and we're going to fail. So what? That won't define us. We've got to fail every now and then to succeed. It is okay to fail. Just learn, move on. Don't make the same failure twice. Don't keep doing the same failure over and over again. But it's not the end of the world to try something and fail. Amen? Amen? You ought to be saying amen. It doesn't matter if you fail. Failing every now and then is good for your soul. But to try and never fail and to take no risk means you are always going to fail. Because you're not going to try. Amen? Well, it's a little weak, but I'll take it. Don Operg in his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat, said something that he thinks is the most important question of life. He said this in the book. Why is it that for some people failure is energizing, while for others it is paralyzing? Why is failure for some people energizing, while for others it's paralyzing? And this morning I think we're going to look into this and discover why that is the case. Why, for some it's energizing, and for others it's paralyzing. It all lies in how we respond to failure. The one who's energized by failure learns from it. I mean, learns from it. It's okay to fail. Life's a lab a little bit, and sometimes I'm going to try something, take a risk, and I'm going to fail. Now, I'm not talking about moral failure, okay? I'm not talking about doing something wrong and saying, well, I failed. No, 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 no. I'm talking about taking a God-ordained kind of risk in your life, trying something new, doing something, and saying, oh, well, that didn't work out. The one energized by failure is willing to try again, counting on the grace of God. The one who is energized by, by you know, failure will say, in the midst of failure, God, what is the next step of faith you want me to take? And What do you want me to do here? See, we want to fail forward into faith as the people of God. We always want to fail forward into faith. A biblical example of how to fail forward into faith is seen in the Old Testament example of King David. And this morning, we're going to look at this example, and we're going to be a little bit pragmatic. How did he actually move from failure to faith in his life? How come he succeeded in his life? And sometimes you can talk about failure, and it's full of platitudes and neat little sayings and theoretical. I want to get really, really practical with this morning as we look at the life uh, 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 of King David and, and see practically how do I fail forward into faith, so David is first spoken of in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Initially, he experiences a, a glittering string of success in this life, just a glittering string of success. The first king of Israel had not worked out. His name was King Saul. So God sent the ancient prophet Samuel to anoint another king to replace eventually King Saul. And this was David. He, at the time, was a ruddy faced young man, And we're told in 1 Samuel 16 verse 13 that he was anointed by Samuel in the presence of his brothers and the Spirit of the Lord came on this boy in power and David had great initial success in life. I just want to say something. If you're a young person and you've experienced great initial success in your life, some failures are around the corner. It is. There will just become a point in your life where some things just don't work out. It's just the nature of life. And so uh, for, for David, as a young person, he just experienced all kinds of success. First of all, he landed a job with the king, with King Saul. Uh, king Saul now was tormented. Uh, the Spirit of God had been removed from him. And so to kind of settle him down, they hired David to play a harp, basically, for him to soothe the king in his tormented moments. That was a great step up for a ruddy boy that was shepherd. All of a sudden, now he's in the king's palace, in the king's court, ministering to the king when he was tormented. Now, that's just the initial step. Then in in, in, in 1 Samuel 17, we read about how David was the only one willing to go out and stand against the uh, enemy Goliath of the Philistines. And this giant man caused fear in everybody else. And David said, "With, with God as my help, I'll defeat him. And David, with just a slingshot, we know the story, took down this giant called Goliath. And he became famous. Throughout the land, so David defeated the giant enemy named Goliath, and then there's this icing on the cake to his success, his initial success. He married Michal, the daughter of King Saul. And Now, this marriage by by David to this daughter Saul was by no means something that Saul did because he was respecting David and wanted to, to you know, bless David. Saul thought, I want to trap this up and comer. I want, I want to take him out. And so, what he said to David is, "Is you can have my daughter's hand if you can kill." 100 philistines so david being the overachiever that he was at that time went out with his men and he killed 200 philistines and so saul was forced to give him his daughter's hand in marriage and so now you have david look at the success of this guy's life he's young he works in the king's court he's a giant killer and he's got the king's daughter as his wife but then we get to 1 Samuel 19, and everything begins to go topsy-turvy. It begins to turn on its head. One by one, all the wonderful things that happened to David uh, were taken away, and David experienced failure. Saul at this point had become insanely jealous of David, and he sought to kill David when David was playing the harp one day by pinning him to the wall with his javelin, with his with a spear. And so David fled for his life, and he became basically a fugitive on the run. That means David lost his job with the king. He was done was no longer in the court of King Saul. He lost his job. He was now a man on a run. He was a fugitive. Anybody remember the movie that came out in 1993 with uh, Harrison Ford, The Fugitive? Anybody watch that old show? It was a remake of the 1960s television series, The Fugitive. Well, in this, in this series, The Fugitive, or the movie, I should say, The Fugitive, there's one miraculous escape after another by Harrison Ford as he, you know, was wrongly accused of killing his wife, and he's fleeing for his life, trying to prove that he's innocent. At the same time, you got Tommy Lee Jones, just great actors, amen? trying to, 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 to rein him in and to arrest him. They get to one point, this damn scene. It's like my favorite, sh- I don't mean damn in a bad way. The damn scene, my favorite point of the show where, where, where Harrison Ford is standing on the edge of the dam and, and Tommy Lee Jones has him cornered. and says, you just kneel down, you know, and then he just throws himself over the edge of the dam. Do you remember that? I kind of laugh when I watched the movie the first time because it was a dummy going over. He was just flopping down there, lifeless, all the way down. If, if you're going down a dam like that, you're going, ah, you know, and you're twirling, and, twirling, and everything's twirling, right? But it was just this dummy going down there. But anyway, you, you get the gist of the movie. David lived this. It wasn't a movie to him. It wasn't some dummy being pushed over the edge of a dam. He fled for his life. Time after time, after time again, he was a man on the run. And King Saul was out uh, to kill him. So he went from being in the court of the king to being a man on the run. And and, and he ends up, he, he, it gets so bad, he ends up fleeing to the enemy of Israel, the Philistines. He ends up in the king's court there, King Achish. And, and, and King Achish you heard about him of the Philistines. You know, Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his 10,000. David said, oh, I'm in trouble. And so David has to feign that he's insane. And he lets spit go on his beard and he acts all goofy. Can you imagine, here's this guy who's slain giants, who's killed his ten thousands, who had the king's daughter as his wife, who had a job in the king's court, and now he's standing before this arch enemy of Israel with spit running down his beard, acting insane. See, David had become a man on the run and feigned insanity in the presence of his enemies to save his life. David had experienced failure here. And in 1 Samuel 25, we read kind of the last straw, this failure, you know, in terms of his, his success criteria. David lost his wife, Magal. She was taken away from him. Saul gave her to another person. Wow. He lost his job. He's on the run. He lost his position. He lost his influence. He lost his reputation. He lost his wife. And Saul's constantly breathing down his neck now, trying to kill this guy. His mentor and spiritual leader, Sam, is really not in his life anymore. His best friend, Jonathan, is Saul's son. That relationship got cut off. Everything that was a success in his life is no more, and it all seemed to be falling apart. Now, after the insanity act at Gath in, in front of King Akish, David runs and escapes, we're told, to the cave of Adullam. And John Ortberg, author of John Ortberg, refers to this as the cave of failure. And oftentimes in our life, the cave of failure is where we end up after things just don't turn out the way we think they're going to turn out in life. You ever been there? I've been in the cave of Adullam personally a lot in my life, many times. So David's in this cave of failure, in the cave of Adullam, and it's a pathetic picture. I mean, sad. Life was going great, now it seems to be not going so great. Uh, You might end up in the cave of Adullam yourself when you lose a job. You might think, wow, why did I lose that job? I'm better than those other employees, and you just are, you're puzzled by it. You might end up in the cave of a when a marriage doesn't work out and it's shattered, and you're thinking, "What in the world happened here?" Or a relationship you were counting on didn't work out, or a son or a daughter didn't work out. You know that can push you into the cave of a You know other things can push you into the cave of a You know I think oftentimes midlife crises push us here. Sometimes when we're young, especially we think life's about success. I get a car, I get a job, I get an education, I get a career, I get everything I need, life is good, and pretty soon you've been doing that for 15 to 20 years, you go, is this all life is? Some of you who are older know exactly what I'm saying. You're thinking, I'm just, do I just live for this job? Is this all I do is make money? All I do is buy a new shiny object? And and you're moving from what I call success orientation to significance orientation, and you're beginning to ask the questions, what on earth am I here for? What's going to be my legacy? But that could put you right here in the cave of Adullam for a season. Cave of Adullam can just be a place where you have this holy discontent and God is doing a great work in your life that's going to change it entirely. Nobody wants to be in a cave. It's just not a fun place. But you know who shows up in the cave, it seems like? God. It seems like he works in the cave in mighty ways because you know why we're to the end of ourselves we're, we're to the end of our uh, you know self-management and self-sufficiency usually in the cave of Adulam. see life is a strange mixture right of faith and failure there's a truth we need to embrace today god works in the cave god does powerful things in the cave when we fail and when we feel inadequate it's at that moment that god shows himself to be strong on our behalf david knew all about failure He spent 10 years of his life basically in this failure mode. From a human perspective, it looked like he was the up and rising star and going to be king, but then failure showed up. He's a classic example of rags to riches, but you know what? It went right back to rags again. And so um, he had to have this cave of a experience. And so he ends up in this village, David does eventually, with a whole bunch of other misfits, this band of misfits And they're in zigzag. And then, if life hadn't been bad enough, they go away. David and his band of misfits—I call them—go away. And while they're gone, his wives and children, and all the wives and children of the of the men with him, get carried off. You see, at this point, David had married a couple more gals. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody to have a couple of them. But he had remarried, and all his wives get carried off, and all the men's wives get carried off. And they come back, and you know what we're told in the scripture? They just melted. They wept. And you can kind of see David get to this point. Really? And he just wept. And I think he was a man that was just brokenhearted. And life had been hard to, on him. And his men began to blame him for the loss of their Wives and children, they wanted to stone him. And this is where we see failure move to faith in David's life. Where we see a real distinct turning point. David, we're told, found strength in the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. David found strength in the Lord. And the question I asked when I first read that, I mean, I remember back, why did he find strength in the Lord? How in the world do you get to that point in the midst of everything that you had just gone through? Well, that's answered for us in Psalm 142. And if you look at Psalm 142 in some of your Bibles, not all of them, it it will have the title above Psalm 142 uh, of when he was in the cave. This is a psalm that David prayed when he was in the cave of Adullam. And this is key to understanding how he found strength in the middle of everything that was going on in his life. And it began with a cave prayer. Psalm 142 begins with what I call just a classic bearing your soul prayer prayer. Uh, to God. Let me read it to you. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him, I tell my trouble. See, the psalms consist of several types. There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms of enthronement of God. There are psalms uh, of wisdom. But the most common psalm is the psalm of lament. And that's what David is doing here in Psalm 142. It's the psalm of lament. You know what that means? It's a complaint psalm. It's somebody just bearing their soul to God. They're just saying, God, I am undone. I cannot believe how my life is going. And they're just having this honest prayer. It's not necessarily something you should build your theology on. People misread psalms sometimes. They misread portions of psalms sometimes. You've got to understand what's going on here. Sometimes it's just the psalmist bearing his soul before the Lord. And that's what David did here. He bared his soul before God. And he said, look, everyone's against me, God. What's going on? And you know what? That is a turning point. That's when you find strength in God, when you get honest. Amen? And you begin to bear your soul to him and say, God, I don't understand what's going on. It doesn't seem fair to me. God's fine with that. That's oftentimes when we begin to find strength in God when we're in the cave of Adullam, when we're facing up to some hard things in our life. You know what? Why I say don't build some of your theology on these lament prayers because I I think of one where the psalmist says, God, break the teeth of my enemies. That's not how you should pray. That's a psalmist saying, I, I, God, see my cause and see how injustice is, but God isn't about breaking the teeth of our enemy. You follow what I'm saying here? So it's important to understand this is the psalm of lament, and the first thing we need to realize if we want to find strength in the Lord is it often begins with the bearing of our soul and all of its torment to God. Then... David goes on to face his discouragement. David just faced up to his discouragement. Listen to uh, verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 142. When my spirit goes faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. So David is just saying, God, I'm discouraged. You're the only one that really cares about me. And you know what? We live in a culture that just shames like crazy when you fail. Do you agree with me on that? When a marriage doesn't work out, there's just so much shame felt there. When a child doesn't turn out like parents want, some can re- and shame you like crazy. Well, you probably didn't train them right or you didn't do this right. Or, you know, all this shame stuff shows up. Um, you know, when you lose a job, sometimes you just can't do the job. But there's shame associated with that. It's just such a shaming culture we live in. Any of you watch the NBA Finals? I'm switching gears a little bit. Basketball I'm talking, Amen. Oh, some of you are yeah, OK. like 10 of you. Anyway, uh, anyway, the Cleveland Cavaliers faced off against the, the Warriors, Golden State Warriors. And I'm a Cleveland Cavalier fan, which, like usual, I just, just don't want me to be your fan or you're going to lose, because that's why I'm a Vikings fan anyway. So the first game, we had this first game. It's a phenomenal game. And the Cavaliers look like they're going to win the game. And LeBron James scored 51 points in a playoff game. That's sick. The man's a phenom. He is a basketball player. And I'm thinking, that is crazy. You just scored 51 points. But at the end of the game, one of his teammates Grabbed the rebound at the missed free throw. I don't know what, what he was thinking. He hasn't said, nobody's really found out. And 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 there was like seven seconds left in the game. Instead of passing it to Bronze, who's sitting there going like this, you know, and he just dribbled around, the time ran out. So they go in overtime, and they lose the game. So they get to the interview after the game. And all they asked LeBron James about, the Phenom, the man who just scored 51 points, probably one of the best or the best basketball player. In the history of the NBA, what happened there? What happened with your teammate? He didn't know. Uh, You know, he uh, he said, "I don't know." uh, You know, they didn't say. What did it feel like to score 51 points? Were you on fire? What was everything you did was it was magical to watch him? It was just unbelievable. All they talked about was that failure. Isn't that not our culture? Isn't it? And he finally just got up out of the interview and walked out. He said. And as he walked out, you could even say, do better next time. I thought, wow. I kind of got more respect for him for doing that, actually. Because I think I would have said some things. A person can have much worse things happen to him in life than losing a basketball game. And our culture is masterful at shaming. And you can become paralyzed in your failure. And the way to get out of that is to face up to that discouragement and honestly address it before you and your God. Amen. Then David does something incredibly important. This is point B. David sought the Lord as his only hope. Listen to these verses, verse 5 through 7 of Psalm 142. I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I'm in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. So David basically says, look, God, I'm facing up to my issues here and facing up to discouragement. And then he basically says, you are my only hope. Okay, there you go. That's how you find strength in God in the cave of Adullam. You honestly assess what's going on. You play it out before God and you say, okay, God. And then you come to the conclusion, God, you are my only hope. Amen? That's how you find strength in the Lord in the middle of a failure. How are you doing with some of this stuff? one thing to read about David, but how are you doing? Let's go to this reflection point. The cave provides an opportunity to learn from failure to follow God. That's what it does for you. When your life is stripped bare and you're facing up to the honesty of the moment and you're saying, God, you're my only hope, you have just done something super significant in your life. You have come to a new level of understanding of dependence on God. Amen. And that's a good thing. That's why the cave of Adullam sometimes is a good thing in our life. And now as the story of David continues, uh, something significant happens. He takes some action, and so David took action. That's also a key to finding strength in God. Take a step of faith. Take some action. Um, the men were talking of stoning David. And David goes to the priest, uh, Abiathar, and he tells him, bring the ephod, and they inquire the Lord, you know, should we pursue these guys? Should we stay here? What, what should we do? You know, the men were talking about stoning David and killing him. That would not do anything but lock him into that failure forever. And, and, and Abiathar says to David, yeah, pursue him. God's going to grace you with success. And then David, being a man of holy obedience, says, I'm going to go do that. And he goes after the guys who had taken the wife and the children. And pursues them and gets them back. But here's a couple things I want you to think about. In any area where you are concerned about failing, if you do nothing, okay. You'll assure it. Amen? David's men just wanted to stone him. Okay, lock him in the failure forever. Lock in the failure of your wife and kids be God forever. Kill David. That's all that would have done. Amen? But by taking a step of action, by going to God in faith, and saying, God, should we pursue them? They moved out of that failure mode. But if you do nothing, your failure will be locked in. Do you agree with me on that? Secondly, part of moving for failure faith involves a willingness on your part just to take the next God-anointed action step, just to do something. Ask God, what would you have me do? And just take the next step. It's just that simple. And I always say it this way, and I love, I love Hebrews chapter 12 because that summarizes it extraordinarily well. Just continue to run the race God has called you to run. Just take the next step of faith. Don't get paralyzed by failure. Peter failed in his life when he looked at the wind and sank, but he experienced water walking. He experienced the rescuing grace of Jesus Christ. Peter failed in his life when he denied Jesus three times, uh, but then he's restored. And then it's that same Peter who on Pentecost Preaches a powerful message that 3,000 are saved. He continued to run the race marked out for him. He continued to take the steps that God wanted him to take. That's how you move from failure into faith. So spend some time this week thinking about how have I handled failure? When I use the word I, I mean you. How have you individually handled failure in your life? What has it done to you as a person? How has it shaped you? How should it shape you? Has it driven you to greater dependence on God? Are you in the middle of something right now where God's saying, take the next step of faith in me, trust me, and begin to use your failure to forward you into a faith mindset. Ask God to grace you that way. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord God, I want to thank you for this uh, morning and this opportunity to talk, I think, on one of the most critical subject matters I could talk on, how to fail forward into faith. And I pray that for anyone here facing something really traumatic or difficult in their life right now, I pray they would be like David. That they would authentically, honestly lay that before you. That they would bear their soul before you. That they would name that discouragement and and, and articulate it, Lord. And then that they would find hope in you. Turn their attention to hope. That there's always hope in you, God. And then that step of action, that step of faith that you were asking them to take, I pray they would step into that today. So they would fail forward into faith, Lord, I pray. I pray this to be a characterization of us people at Grace Point, Lord. And God, I want to echo the prayers of, of, of Pastor Aaron this morning, too, that uh, you would just grace Watertown and Jeff and Kate, Lord, as they go there and begin a new work and a new day. I pray for just miracles and, and divine intervention to be the norm. I pray that for us. Why not? That's who you are, God. We love you and we praise you today and we count on you to do wonderful things in our lives, Lord. In your name, Jesus, and all God's people said,